Pray with me, if you will. <laughs> May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. You know, just before Thanksgiving last year, our daughter Jocelyn called me on the phone and asked, is Julie there? I said, yeah, let me put her on speakerphone. And as I did so, Jocelyn just said, I just want to send her a, a text message, a text picture. And it was her sonogram announcing to us that we would be grandparents in July. And then last New Year's Eve, she and her husband Ian had a gender reveal celebration, so it's going to be a girl. And now, just to put that in context, for my mom and dad, I am the last of six boys. Yes, I am the baby. And from us six boys, six, six sons, there are 13 grandkids. And they're all married. And the next generation from them currently number 25. That's 10 boys and 15 girls. The girls outnumber the boys. And so Joss and Ian's baby will total, bring the total to 26. But wait, there's more. We also found out that a niece announced her pregnancy as well. So that'll bring the next generations to 27. <laughs> and so July will be a very busy month. And each of them will not only just have their given names, but a Chinese name uh, will be added to the Aoyang tree to link them to the ancestral village back in China. And so for the Aoyangs, there are a lot of moms. It's going to be a busy time for them as they bring up their kids. And speaking of moms, we all know that what's happening across the pond of um, uh, Meghan Markle, Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Sussex, and she's the latest mom to uh, come into notoriety these days. And while we're waiting for the birth of their baby sometime in April, we think, no, they don't get Chinese names, but they get royal titles. And what it will be will be anyone's guess. And uh, it's funny because the previous um, pregnancy with uh, Kate, I don't know her title, something like the Royal Duchess of Cambridge, you know, you keep track of them, I don't know. But uh, I remember reading about a series of questions as, you know, motherhood comes into order. It's not just moms, but dads too, that there was a survey done in the United Kingdom about uh, all the questions that moms get. And yes, they're called moms, not moms. And some from breakfast to afternoon tea, and yes, this was done in the United Kingdom, so that's why they have United, uh, tea time. They surveyed, and I don't know how they came up with this number, but they get a question every two minutes and 30 seconds. And so that adds up to 105,120 questions per year that the moms get. And the questions spike during the meal times. Girls age four are the most curious, asking an incredible 390 questions per day. And on the other end of the spectrum, boys, guys, we like to be silent, they only ask not nine questions uh, all the time. But the top five questions are wonderful. Why is water wet? Where does the sky end? What are shadows made of? Why is the sky blue? How do fish breathe underwater? Now, if you've been a mom or a dad, you probably had questions like that, because I know my kids bombarded me, and once I turned the tables on them, I started asking them questions. Why is that building so tall? Why is the sun so bright? And you know, I went on and on for about 10 minutes, and they stood very quiet and stopped asking me questions. So. <laughs> but no matter what answer you get, especially the quizzical looks, all those Q and A's, somehow they build an invisible bond 
between parent and child, especially mother and child. You know, it takes a lot of work to nurture these connections, whether it's by sight, sound, or, and yes, even touch. And to be a mom has never been an easy job. And I'm sure there are times when many moms thought, it's not my job. Go ask your father, right? We've heard that before. Because she's earned her stripes, and no one dares to question the wisdom of a mom. I once asked my mom where she was going, and she curtly replied, somewhere. And then I asked what she was doing, and she said, something. End of discussion. I want us to focus on a particular mom. This time, it's going to be about Mary. And she is at a wedding. And why she was there, we really don't know. It could have been friends. It could have been you know, someone in the family, maybe she was the caterer, maybe she was just the wedding hostess, but, you know, it was a wedding, and, you know, with celebrations like that, uh, you know, they have food and wine, and they have music, and they have wine, they have fun, they have wine, and at some point, they ran You may notice in the scripture, it said, on the third day, Jesus and his buddies arrived. In those days, weddings went on for days. Now imagine that having a party at least for three days, if not a week, if not a month, sometimes it went on that long. But for them, they ran out of wine. And weddings are a big deal. And I want to pause for a moment and uh, make note that some people are in recovery. But I want us to take a look at not just the physical, but the spiritual and the, um, the uh, emotional context of all this as, as a metaphor. And for, especially for Mary, if she was the hostess or close friends, it would have been a major, major embarrassment at this wedding. And as we heard with the children's story, sometimes there are weddings that have lots of fun that sometimes go a little bit wrong. And as a pastor, I take pride in the weddings I have done, and I've been fortunate not to have goofed up any of them so far. But once I co-pastored with a uh, retired elderly grandfather who was doing the wedding for his grandson. Now, the grandson was a twin, and the month before that pastor had done the wedding for the previous grandson, but at the current wedding, he kept on calling the new bride the other woman's name. And then when it came time for the wedding ring itself, he picked it up from the Bible and dropped it. And so I picked it up, and rather than give it back, I decided to hold on to it until it was time to give it to the groom to give it to his wife. Now, at a time like this, you just want to crawl into a hole and die because you're totally embarrassed. And I wonder if Mary felt that way, that she was totally embarrassed that there was no more wine, and everyone was expecting it, and she just wanted to crawl into that same hole as well. You know, running out of wine may not seem like a big deal, but in the scheme of things, especially in first century Palestine, it would have resulted in public shame. And plus, your wedding day is the one you want everything to go perfect. And I love the fact that this first miracle of Jesus is not about saving a life. It's about saving face. It shows how much God cares about the minute details of our lives. And God is great not just because nothing is too big. God is great because nothing is too small. If it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to God. And the story continues. When the wine gave out, 
the mother of Jesus said to him, I imagine Mary going up and just whispering to Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not come. And I wonder if Mary actually said, go to your room. No. <laughs> In some way, Jesus may have respectfully said, well, what do you want me to do about it? It's not my job. His response to Mary was not dismissive, but it was very disengaging. It's not my job. You know, for almost 20 years, Jesus had grappled with the need to do his father's business. And it was clear that carpentry wasn't it, and neither was making wine. And whether Mary knew that this miracle would start the clock of Jesus' journey to Calvary, we don't know. But that's what makes this miracle so remarkable. It took a mother's instinct, maybe from all those 3,000 questions he asked every day, it took a mother's instinct to know that this was Jesus' moment. This may be sort of rude, but think of it this way. Jesus is saying, Mom, you don't understand. It's not the right time. And Mary was by no means being an aggressive tiger mom, but she was saying, I know you don't think it's the right time, but I need a little help here, because that whole wedding meant a whole lot to her. And Jesus knows the Old Testament, that law that says, honor your mother and father. So Jesus steps in. And not to be deterred, Mary seems to manage maybe one more strategic little whisper, and this time to the servants. And I can imagine her going up to the servants who are watching that interchange between Mary and Jesus, and so she's with the servants, almost like a quarterback huddle, and she kind of, you know, says, you know, that guy over there? Yeah, that guy. Uh, if by any chance he asks you to do something, you know, anything, anything, whatever he says, do it, guys. And I mean whatever. Just do it. Ready? Break. And the, Jesus says to those servants, See those six stone jars over there? They hold about 20 or 30 gallons each, and I want you to fill each of them with water. So the servants did that, and John, the writer of this gospel, said that they were filled to the brim, all the way to the top. And Jesus said, I want you to go and serve out of these jars to the master of the banquet, the master of ceremonies, and then serve it to the guests as well. Now, if you were the servant, what would you be thinking? If I was a servant, I would say, oh my God, my job is on the line, and if it's just water, I'm going to get creamed by the master. But the lady did say, whatever. So we're doing what the lady says. Now, the water in the cistern was now suddenly what I call a miracle cabernet, and not just grape juice. And this was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed, a behind-the-scenes miracle that met a huge need that had just popped up at this wedding. But when you think about, it, is this really, is this really the one miracle we would have expected as an opener for this illustrious career for the Son of God? Well, when you think about it, as a matter of fact, yes. Because John's gospel is encouraging us to ponder, to consider, to embrace the evidence and believe that Jesus was the one who said, I am the Christ, the Son of God. And everyone knew at the party that the cheap stuff, even vinegar, got slopped out at the end of the celebration when no one can taste anything. 
So I imagine the servants was desperately hoping that the only tiny sip would be taken by the boss and he would say yes to anything just to keep the party going. But with eyes as big as brandy glasses, the servant watched the steward take an enormously enormous gulp, a nervous gulp at that, close his eyes and open them and lick his lips and breathe deeply as the warmth lit up his cheeks. And like most of God's miracles of grace, this incident brings laughter, laughter. The Toastmaster fell over himself as he brought the party to a halt and burst out with a eulogy of praise, if you will, and applauded the surprise bridegroom. And then the wedding went on and the story ends, but there's no mention of recognition of Jesus, the one who caused all this. But if there's one thing that Jesus loved, it was faith. And not merely the need of the crisis that motivated him, but childlike faith, the faith of his mother, Mary. Mary had faith in him. Mary turned to Jesus. Mary trusted Jesus. Shouldn't we do the same? Jesus' mother needed help. And I'm sure he wanted to help. He wanted to make her proud. He wanted to honor his mother. So she's asking for his help. She is expecting something of Jesus. There was a problem, and she needed his help. And some of you, some of us, myself at times, we are wrestling with problems. We have issues that are pressing in. Our lives may be spinning out of control. Do you expect Jesus to do anything in your life Faith is important, but this is what we need to know. Sometimes things will get worse before God makes them better. And we see this principle in the Bible all the time. We see the characters in the Bible who lived this. Joseph, who had to go to prison before he could be exalted in a place of leadership in the kingdom. David, who had been promised to be the king of Israel, found himself hiding out for his life in cold, dark places before being exalted to the place of leadership in the palace. Peter in the New Testament had to fall before he could experience God's grace, and before he could lead 3,000 people to Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. Jesus himself had to die on the cross before he could be resurrected, and we could have that forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. And sometimes things had to get worse before God could make them better. And many of us are experiencing those worst things, the worst end. We are out of metaphorically wine. We are out of finances. Our relationships are stuck or they are non-existent. We play dysfunctional family field. We don't know what to do. First Peter 5.10 says this, after you have suffered a little while, God himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast, like being on eagle's wings. And after you have run out of wine, after the bonus doesn't come, after your spouse has looked at you and said you are not good enough again, and if your kids have screamed and yelled how much they hate you, after the lab reports come in, after the tests, you find out that Medicare doesn't cover the procedures, after you come back from the funeral, after the company downsizes, after you have suffered a little while, there is a promise. And that promise is this that God will himself restore you and make you strong. The truth, the promise that God gives us is that after we have suffered for a little while, God will show up and make us stronger 
better. He will make life better. But we have to put our hope and trust in him. And many of us listening to this message today are living in verse 3 of that miracle. We are living out of wine. The wine is gone. The wine is run out. And we are at the end of our rope. We have run out of hope and out of options. We have to do what Mary did. We have to look to Jesus for our solutions. Don't lose hope. What Jesus did at that wedding, he will do for us. But we have to look to him. A lot of us look to solutions in other things. We look to solutions for our financial issues in casinos, the lottery or credit cards. We look for solutions of our relationships in internet chat rooms or with poorly chosen conversations with others. Don't go there. Look to Jesus for your solution. We need to move from verse 3, no more wine, to verse 10. And here's the deal. Jesus saves the best for last. Yeah, things may get worse before God makes them better, but Jesus saves the best for last. Look what happens at the end of this story in verse 10. The servants gave the master of ceremonies a cup of water that had been turned into wine. He didn't know where it came from, but the servants did. When he tasted it, he called the groom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And here's the point. Things make it worse. But remember that Jesus saves the best for last. God's best is coming. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose hope. His best is coming. Hang on. He's going to show up. The miracle is about putting our trust in God, knowing that he wants to show up and he will show up. But we have to ask and we have to listen. And that leads us to this final point. We have to do what Jesus says to do. His mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. We've got to ask then whatever he tells us, whatever he speaks into our lives, we've got to do it. We must take action James 2.17 says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead, is dead. In other words, you can come to church. You can say you believe all day long. But if you are not willing to put action into that faith, then your faith is actually dead. You have no faith. So what part of God's solution are you simply not obeying? Today, today is the day we start to obey. Today is a day that we begin to do, that we respond, that we act. Because Jesus and his servants obeyed, a miracle happened. Mary came to Jesus and said, listen, we are out of wine. You need to do something about that. And when his mother took that step and said to those servants, whatever he tells you, do it, do it. Jesus recognized that at that moment, that he will respond and not disobey scripture. And namely that fifth commandment for him, thou shalt honor thy mother and father. So for Jesus to have, not to have responded would have been dishonoring his mother. And only one thing that mattered and that he would obey. And so he honored his mother, whether or not it was his job. And he worked that miracle quietly and behind the scenes. His mother knew it, the disciples knew it, and the servants knew it, and that was it. And he performed the miracle. 
he honored his mother. When Jesus turned water into wine, he turned a wedding party into a celebration that revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The wedding at Cana doubled as his miraculous debut as it produced a miracle cabernet. The bride and groom became extras on the set as Jesus took center stage, but it was the supporting actress who played the key role in this scene. It was Mary, his mother. And whether it was a glance, a gentle word, a recognized touch that bridges an invisible yet eternal bond between mother and child, it was a mother's nudge that was the catalyst for the miracle. Who nudges you? And who do you need to nudge? Most of the guests continued to the party without a clue of Jesus' intervention in a way that most people are enjoying the kindness and mercy of a gracious and long-suffering God, ignorant of what he has done for them through Jesus and the beloved community we call church. But the fact is that if you know that Jesus is the one who made the difference, then like the disciples, you're going to believe in him and increase in your faith. There are a lot of people out there in the world, our community, who are thirsty, not for another glass of wine, but for hope. We, like the servants in this story, may not know everything, but we have the opportunity to create a beloved community by sharing what's in our hand and heart, the love of Jesus. With all those six stone jars filled to capacity, with 180 gallons of the best wine in the world, Jesus quenched every monotonous business-as-usual thought. And it's amazing how we are often tempted to think that the best is behind us, that we can never recover those times recorded in our private diaries as vintage years. All Mary knew was that the best was gone. She had no idea what Jesus would do, but she did know that he would do the right thing and it would be great. So Mary turned to Jesus, and Mary trusted Jesus. It's not my job, you may say, to turn water into wine, but it is our job to be like the servants in that story, to pour out the grace of Jesus so that we can be the beloved community. And as the wine continued to be poured out, I wonder if Mary caught Jesus' eye across the room, and when she did, was that a glass that Jesus was raising to toast his mother and just kind of wink at her with laughter and a smile? Maybe. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this time to look at this wonderful story, to turn to you, to trust you, that you will do amazing things, things that are beyond our capacity to imagine, but we know they will be great. So help us, God, to understand that there are times we may be out of wine, but we are never out of grace. Amen.